0: Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker.
1: Okay, here's one. Why didn't the Buddhist vacuum in the corner? Because he has no attachments.
2: I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from the Francis Stanton Studios in Los Angeles, this is The Dinner Party Download, the show that <laughs> helps you win your next dinner party. Our icebreaker this week came from comedian Natasha Leggero.
0: She's a regular on the TV show Chelsea Lately.
2: And later, we'll be speaking with our guest of honor, humorist Andy Barowitz. But first, small talk. Mm-hmm. So, Brendan, this week the news read
0: like the liner notes for a hip-hop album, which I often see you reading. When, when am I not? The G20 kicked off in Pittsburgh. That's a hard crew. Yeah, the, the Gang of Six released their health care proposal. I have all their comic books. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) And General McChrystal, a.k.a. Method Man, said he needed more troops in Afghanistan.
2: But your dinner guests will have heard all about that. So we asked Kay Riznach and the Marketplace clan to tell us some stories your friends won't know. Kick it. New York reporter Jeremy Hobson, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, Brendan, since I'm in L.A., I'm going to give you a California story. It is from San Joaquin County, the sheriff's department has bought a vehicle that is so big they can't even drive it on the roads. Wait, what do you mean? They needed an emergency response vehicle, and its it weighs so much that it's illegal in California to drive. <laughs> so somewhere in San Joaquin County, this uh, vehicle is driving in circles, trying to catch itself to give itself a <laughs> ticket. Stacy Vanek smith senior reporter. Go.
1: Well, models are going to start coming with warning labels. Explain. Uh, The French are looking into a law that would require a warning label on a picture that had been modified to make the model look skinnier, you know, like in ads and magazines. And why? To combat anorexia?
0: Well, see, now that's admirable, but I think on certain magazines, wouldn't you have to put like a warning label on the entire front cover because it's all just like a ridiculous fantasy? (laughs) (laughs) It would be like warning there is no such thing as anti-aging cream,
2: warning you cannot win him back. But the horoscopes are true. Amy Scott, Bureau Chief for New York City, what's your story?
1: Uh, Well, apparently relaxed cows are more productive.
2: Wow, have you been reading The Far Side again?
1: No, this comes from Reuters, actually. Uh, New regulations in Norway apparently allow dairy cows to relax for up to half a day on soft, rubberized mattresses, and that's making them produce more milk.
2: That's amazing.
1: It's pretty amazing. I
2: have to have a Norwegian cow negotiate my next contract. (laughs) And now,
0: time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like a pita pocket stuffed with history, and instead of tahini, you add booze. I can't decide if that's tasty or disgusting. <laughs> you need some cucumbers, too. Uh, first, the history part. This week back in
2: 1959, Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev showed up in Coon Rapids, Iowa. And unless your dinner party's in Coon Rapids, Iowa, we doubt your guests will know why. Thanks to our friend Michelle Philippi, you're about to.
1: Everyone likes corn. Hey! Even godless communists. Case in point, Nikita Khrushchev. He thought corn was the key to ending the Soviet Union's chronic food shortages. In fact, in 1955, he gave a big speech announcing plans to plant miles of corn, kinda like, Iowas. That's just what an Iowa corn farmer named Roswell Garst wanted to hear. See, America was in the middle of a corn glut that was driving down prices. Garst figured the U.S. could unload its surplus on the Soviets. Plus, bonus, it'd promote world peace. Garst asked the State Department to let him sell corn to the commies. Now, this was right in the middle of the Red Scare, but the government reluctantly okayed Garst's plan, figuring the Ruskis would never deal with a cantankerous capitalist. Wrong! On his first trip to Moscow, Garst sold 5,000 tons of corn seed and became best pals with an ex-farmer, Khrushchev himself. Four years later, Khrushchev became the first Soviet leader to ever visit the U.S. The only two guys he specifically asked to see, Eisenhower at the White House and Garst on his farm. The media freaked
3: out. There was a horde of journalists and they started crowding in so that you couldn't see the corn for the journalists. Roswell Garst uh, got angry, uh, started picking up the husks and hurling them. At one point, he slipped and fell into a ditch. Everybody roared with laughter, Khrushchev first and foremost.
1: Life magazine ran a cover photo of Khrushchev waving an ear of Garst's corn. For many, it symbolized a thaw in the Cold War. But the good vibes only lasted a few years. Khrushchev never did solve his country's food shortage. And by 1961, the Berlin Wall was under construction. As Roswell Garst once said, hungry people are dangerous people.
0: So that was the history. Now let's hear the drink to serve along with it. I'm talking to Ashley Guillaume. She is at the High Life Lounge in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, very near Coon Rapids, Iowa. And Ashley, you've heard the history. What drink does it inspire you to make?
4: After I heard the history, I did a bit more research and found that Kercheff was quoted as saying, the martini is America's lethal weapon. Is that true? That is true. Is, well, is the martini a lethal weapon?
0: Well, I knew that, but did he actually say it? He did. That's amazing.
4: So I decided to go with a dry martini. I named it Roswell's Weapon, Roswell being Roswell Garst. Of course. And made with corn vodka.
0: Corn vodka? is it how Does it taste different?
4: It, it's a creamier taste, not as dry, just has more more of a creamy texture to it.
0: Is there anything in this world that does not have corn in it at this point? Not
4: a lot of things. <laughs> Pretty prevalent.
0: Lucky for your state. It uh, is. Very lucky. All right. So it's a martini. Do you use uh, vermouth? A uh,
4: swirl of dry vermouth and chilled corn vodka with a garnish of Nyman Ranch peppered bacon, twisted and stuffed with Maytag blue cheese.
0: And Nyman Ranch bacon comes from Iowa?
4: Yes. And but not,
0: but you didn't go with a garnish of corn just to make it as corny as possible? No.
4: No corn. I had the corn in the vodka.
0: Well, that's admirable restraint. <laughs> and is that it?
4: That would be all.
0: Far simpler than than international diplomacy, apparently.
4: Absolutely.
2: Rico, that's an amazing piece of history, yep. and it explains a lot for me. Like Because what? I, I always wondered why Gorbachev had the state of Iowa tattooed on his forehead. And <laughs> now it all makes and sense. And now you know. <laughs> I thought those were grits. No, no, that's his tramp stamp. You're confusing
4: it.
0: Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you can see photos of our tattoos Brendan's and mine, on our Facebook page. Both are work safe, except for Brendan's.
2: Our guest of honor this week is Andy Barwitz. He is a humorist and a satirist, and his work can be found at thebarwitzreport.com, also in The New Yorker, The Huffington Post. I think Jay-Z would describe what you do as moguling. You're, you're a comedy mogul.
3: That's how Jay-Z has referred to me when we've when we've been together. He's he's mentioned that.
2: When I talk to Jay-Z, he encouraged me to put a ring on it, but that's a whole different thing. So um, the new political season's upon us. Congress has returned. What are you looking forward to in this political season as a comedian?
3: I'm hoping for many more outbursts. Going into this, I really thought that Joe Biden would be the one who would be apt to that kind of thing, uh, and he actually has been sort of a paragon of self-control compared to some other people.
2: There has been some a real absurd quality in the headlines with Judge Sotomayor. We had um, um, an attack on empathy. It just seems like almost as a comedian, your work is done for you just by the average newspaper. I mean, what's, what is there left to make fun of?
3: Well, you know, that's a, one of the paradoxes of comedy is that the worse the news gets, the better it is for me. So we really need more sort of horrible, draconian uh, laws in order for my industry to survive.
2: Well, that's interesting. I, I read um, that you're a father. And so how do you make that pivot? Because you wake up in the morning, you see some outrageous headlines. You're like, this is going to be wonderful humor. But then you actually have these kids that are growing up in this crazy world. I mean,
3: I, I really, you know, have to split the difference. I mean, I want them to have a, a great future, but um, we got to pay that electric bill. I, I tell them, you know, they're just going to have to roll with it. I mean, we may all be doomed, but daddy's going to make fun of something.
2: Uh, you had a book that came out this year. Can you give us the full title?
3: Sure, it's called Who Moved My Soap? The CEO's Guide to Surviving in Prison, the Bernie Madoff edition. Because I had written an earlier version of this book in 2003 when we were at the height of Enron and Tyco and WorldCom and Martha Stewart. And I remember at that time, a lot of the pundits were saying, you know, we're never gonna let this kind of abuse uh, of the financial world happen again. And sure enough, six years later, I was at Bernie Madoff sentencing outside the same courthouse where Sam Waxel of MClone had been sentenced six years early. So, you know, we're paying a price as a society for all this wrongdoing, but we're also benefiting tremendously uh, by having my book come out every six years. So, I,
2: Control, find Martha Stewart, replace with Bernie Madoff.
3: Uh, I, I hate that you've decoded my <laughs> my writing technique that thoroughly, but that's that's more or less what happened, yeah.
2: Okay, so we have a, two standard questions on our show. Uh, the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked at
3: dinner parties? You know, when you're a comedian and a writer, people always say, what's next for you? And you know, say, so what's the big project you're working on? And at moments like that, I just think, when anyone asks that of a dentist, you know, it's like if you took out a tooth that day, you know, you've, you've scrubbed up and you've gone to a dinner party, or people are saying, so what's next up for you? What are you, are you gonna reinvent the mouth? I mean, people have, it puts undue pressure on me. I actually don't have an enormous project um, on the rise. I don't think that makes me seem like a tremendous loser.
2: Well, our second question is, tell us something we don't know, something
3: you haven't talked about uh, in interviews before. I'm very tall. People, when they meet me, they often say, oh, you know, I've been reading you for years. I had no idea you were that tall. And I, I, I just don't know what, should I put more information on my website? Should it be like a Playmate data sheet where I have my measurements and stuff? But I guess they see the little picture of me on the internet, the little JPEG, and they don't realize that that could be attached to a six foot four inch body but
2: well could it be being a a sort of tall guy myself that humor sometimes comes from a place of being maybe the loser or the kind of outsider but people assume tall people have an easier time of it in the world
3: well you know tall people though (laughs) tall people are often kind of string beans when they're growing up you know um if they were also somewhat awkward and uh goofy if i may use that word um it's not unusual for us to turn to comedy in, in desperation did you just call me Goofy? No, I was calling. I was referring to myself. No, no, no. Brendan, did you beat up Andy Barowitz? <laughs>
2: no, but he is our new intern. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah.
0: That is quite a fall from grace, seeing as he was... Andy Barowitz was the creator of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air.
2: That's true. And so it's kind of poetic justice that he replaced Jazzy Jeff, <laughs> don't you think, our former intern? <laughs> Bon voyage, Jazzy. Uh,
0: Folks, if you want to be our intern, God knows our website could use the help. Uh, Check
2: it out, dinnerpartydownload.com. So we've met our guest of honor. Now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about what's going on in the world of food. So, Brendan,
0: the news around the foodosphere, mm-hmm. such as it is, is uh, about the the part of the restaurant experience that is most uncomfortable.
2: Radicchio? <laughs> Freaks me out, it man. It does. It's kind of, it's sharp. <laughs> yeah. I think it's
0: growing in my bathtub. But uh, no, I'm talking about Tipping. Uh, the ah. Yes, The Atlantic started it all rolling on its website by asking readers how tipping should work because no one can quite figure it out, especially when there are like, enormous sums involved. And this is why you don't tip, ever. Yes. But in the New York Times this week, Phoebe Damrosch presented a provocative solution in essay form. Uh, Phoebe is a former waitress and author of the book Service Included, and here's the gist of her argument.
5: I propose a service charge to provide benefits, especially health insurance, to waiters with the long-term idea that if we can attract professionals who want to be there for the long term that we might have better service in the long run
0: so no tipping just a service charge yes which i know they do in europe and i guess the argument is whether you actually get better service in
5: europe people are very divided about it for us it's hard to imagine whether people would work hard if there wasn't the incentive of the tip although we tip at the end you know why wouldn't you tip at the beginning if you want to encourage good service but I've been getting these emails from people in Europe and while they say that not necessarily is the service that much better they also say that they have a more leisurely experience that they don't feel the sort of the American approach where you know you're sat down you're encouraged to order the most expensive things on the menu pay your check and get out of there as soon as possible if they're not worried about the tip they might allow you to sort of linger a little longer
0: well but on the other hand then you get the opposite effect which I experience every time I go to you know the Netherlands where I'm sitting there Waiting for somebody to bring me a check for sometimes seriously like an hour. Right. I mean, do you also risk the opposite, which is that nobody is paying attention to you at all?
5: It's possible. I guess the question is how do we encourage people to be as professional as possible, to be excited about their jobs and don't want to rush out and head to their next audition? (laughs) Maybe more wine and spirits education, more guest speakers, encouraging people to travel and to eat out on their free time. You know, how do we draw people who have a passion for food and wine to the business?
0: Why do you think that this has become such a flashpoint topic all of a sudden? Why are people so uptight about it?
5: Well, I think we spend so much time thinking about food. We have a million food shows and food media. And, and us. Yes. And, and we're all interested in our ingredients, but yet the service is often the weak link it makes sense that we're looking at the tipping and, and decide whether it's working. If it's not, you know, maybe it's time to try something new.
0: And I will say also that it, you know, it would be nice to have a service charge built in so that you don't have to kind of guesstimate what it is you actually owe and there's no further talk about that.
5: Right, you could sit down, eat your meal, served by professionals, and leave. And know that that professional, if he's burning himself on a hot plate, can get that taken care of. You know, there's a study done in 2005 that 75 percent of New York restaurant workers were uninsured.
0: On the other hand, though, how much different is that than any other profession?
5: Well, I guess that's another, a larger issue as well.
0: That is a topic for
2: President Obama. (laughs) (laughs) So, Rico, here's an idea. Go. Make restaurants more like strip clubs. (laughs) (laughs) That is an idea. People could bring a wad of ones. (laughs) And, you know, you, you peel them off, as depending on the, how good the service is throughout so it's the night. Like if, they, if they bring you breadsticks. You can make it rain if they give you extra breadsticks. And, uh, you know, the restaurants can blast Creed, and you can get dances in the cheesecake.
0: As Phoebe was saying, <laughs> make the profession respectable. Exactly. And that's the Dinner Party download for this week. To keep up with us between episodes, we deliver daily dinner party fodder on Twitter. It's true. Follow us at
2: DinnerPartyDNLD. And you can also catch us on the arts and culture show Off Ramp, hosted by John Raby and Queen Kim. You'll find that at KPCC.org. We leave you, as always, with One
0: for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or departing from this weekend's dinner party.
2: The band's called Local Natives, and dare we say you'll be hearing them around the bonfire this autumn. The song's called Airplanes. Bon Appetit!
0: I'm Rico Galliano, and I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. There he goes again. Jeff, your last day was Monday.